for space is there, and the moon and the planets are there, and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Scientists experimented to learn what would happen if they fired a neutron bullet at the nucleus of the uranium atom. That's why I'm glad the plant is coming here. It'll mean the best schools and hospitals and things like that. Avec Fessenheim, l'électricité de France a décidé d'entrer de plein pied dans l'air nucléaire. Thus, a reactor may be substituted in many industrial applications where heat is now provided by coal or petroleum. On December 2nd, 1942, man achieved here the first self-sustaining chain reaction and thereby initiated the controlled release of nuclear energy. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Honest Podcast, The History of Nuclear Energy and Society, a three-year interdisciplinary research adventure seeking to better understand that relationship between societies and nuclear energy. I'm your host, Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. This is episode three. We're looking at events, events that have taken place in specific countries, and even the question of why studying these events is useful for this project. We'll hear about several cases from different countries with help from some excellent researchers. But before we get to that, let's start with that question. Why look at events? I turn now to two returning champions of the podcast from the Science Museum of London, Robert Budd, and from Universidad Pública de Navarra, Mar Rubio. There are several levels at which countries interconnect. One is a big news story from one country which has impact on another. Another relationship is that the dynamics, the way in which people interact, particularly within Western Europe or among Central European countries, are not so different. But we need to understand that much better. And particularly, we need to understand how the relationships between people affect the choice of nuclear systems and nuclear technologies, and how the choice of nuclear technologies affect the interrelationships between people. It, basically, the decision of focusing on, on particular events comes from the social scientists on the consortium. They cannot, and it will be completely unfeasible, analyze the overall story of all the countries. But we can focus on specific events and try to, for each of the events, concentrate on the actors who were involved, on the perceptions of those actors, on how they acted on their perceptions, in the sense of what kind of engagement they put forward. Did they complain? Did they shout? Did they wrote letters? Did they appear on TV? Did they talk to each other or they didn't? This can be done not only by taking international uh, developments, but by better understanding particular national events at a deep level in terms that will make sense internationally, so that we understand the role of different kinds of actors, the role of the general public, not only as worrying about 
the effect of nuclear uh, radiation, but also as consumers of electricity and worrying about continuity of supply. So by studying a particular kind of decision, in one a technical decision in one country, in depth, we can understand better how that, those kinds of decisions should be thought about when we look at other countries. Now that we've got the why we study events, let's dive into some examples, starting with two cases from two different countries where violence, and in one specific example, terrorism and nuclear energy somehow get wrapped up in the same discussion. My name is Astrid Kirchhoff and um, I work for the Deutsche Museum, which is the, as far as I know, biggest technological museum, at least in Europe. And I work for the research department there. And um, for Honest, I'm uh, responsible to write the country report on West Germany. Uh, I think when, when people discuss uh, media or whoever, um, West Germany, it is a little bit different because um, West Germany, I think, is supposed to be or seen as always at the forefront of um, environmental engagement, movement, um, uh, anti-nuclear movement, mm -hmm. and things like that. And um, I think what sets it apart um, a little bit from other movements is the violence um, that has been engaged or that can be seen in the in the movements and and I think on two both sides um, it's like the environmental uh, anti-nuclear protesters have been quite violent same as the um, uh, police has been violent to condemn or you know yeah, condemn the movement it's not um, like it is in the Spanish case that there were terror attacks, attacks or like the Rote Armee Fraktion was not involved in anti-nuclear movement how it was um, in the Spanish case um, but it's um, it's it's quite obvious how how violent um, these encounters these you know when demonstrations were how they were often there were occupied sites for a long time and then the police came and carried the people away and they wouldn't you know and also that's at least what the movement people the members would say mm -hmm. that many people were just average Germans you know mother father whatever housewife mm -hmm. and they were turned into criminals by the state by how they talked about them that they were taken away I think a little bit the right of protesting and they were kind of often talked about chaotic, chaotic violence and these were just people who were concerned first of all and not all of them of course were violent but there were people who were violent but then the whole movement was seen as being violent mm -hmm. and of course the protesters on the other side said like um, and I've seen it myself when I was on demonstrations in Berlin that there were people with little children and then the um, police comes with water cannon and I mean there have been severe cases of people being blinded by uh, by that and uh, you know for basically sick for the rest of their life or couldn't see anymore many of them probably not all I like um, have a deep skepticism in their state and they don't just don't buy it or they just don't accept that the state has also a position on them saying like um, 
we can't accept people writing like that so you go into prison and then they would even see this as a double punishment or a double reason for skepticism saying like you're blinding us you're telling us lies all the, the time then we are utter our voice against it which is our right and our duty even not only right we have to do that and um and now you're punishing us for that so that makes the state even even worse than we we thought how how the state was the reason or one reason maybe why german protesters feel so strongly about that goes back to the third reich we have been um accused as the generation of our parents has been uh, accused of um, looking away not intervening not not doing steps against the state which was back then hitler of course and the nsdap the part leading party and um, many protesters um, have been saying or feel like they have to intervene at an early stage to say we don't want our children to accuse us again saying like you were quiet when it was necessary to speak up so and that's that's why they feel i think very strongly about it german approach is very goes back to the 19th century also um it's very romantic or romanticism based mm -hmm. which means um you have to live in harmony and contemplation with um with uh, in the environment mm -hmm. um 18th 19th century thinkers um even go so far saying um Uh, you know, Germans are called the forest people, mm -hmm. that, 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 that the forest, the environment shapes your character. And mm -hmm. very many people I've talked to, like in Germany, believe this, right or wrong, whatever, but took it on as yeah. an identity, like our environment shapes us. And that's why we are like this and that. And that is, means much more living with the environment. And ultimately, one day, environment strikes back. I think the two things that made uh, the most impact on how the society relations with nuclear developing in Spain are basically to one is the, the, the developments over the fight in the Basque country um, versus the nuclear power, which uh, is very particular to Spain because of the nationalism involved and the terrorism involved in it. And the second was the decision of the nuclear moratorium. Because both things basically mark the long-term evolution of, of the Spanish nuclear program, and both things make Spain um, differentiate Spain, if you wish, from the rest of countries. So, on on the first case, on on the Basque anti-nuclear movement, um, what we like to put forward is that it has a kind of a double story. It has a story that goes from 1972 up to 1973 six or so in which is a much more common story of uh, society um, racing up against a decision from the electrical companies. The story goes that on the same day in 1972, Iberduero, which is the largest company, uh, electrical company in the country, asked permission for building six uh, reactors in the uh, Basque country and uh, around surrounding uh, regions. Um, this is important because until that day, basically only three reactors had been planned and uh, authorized in Spain. So basically they were asking for doubling that number up to six, and they asked for that on the very same day. Um, that asking for so many reactors in such a little space actually 
caught the attention of some people among the civil society, particularly particular in those uh, small villages where these uh, plans were supposed to uh, be built. And for the first three years, this is the story of civil society getting organized, uh, complaining, writing letters, organizing uh, parades, uh, much more aligned what had happened in other places in Spain and in other places in Europe. What it makes it different is that after 1976 and towards 1977, um, the nationalist terrorist group ETA, ETA enters into the scene, um, taken a stage by also assuming as uh, its own um, the fight against the nuclear power. And what it has until that day been a peaceful civil movement versus uh, the nuclear plans become much more of uh, a position of nationalistic versus non-nationalistic positions and definitely become much more of uh, a violent pursuit of, of the aims. Uh, ETA put something like 300 bombs um, on the project altogether until, 19, until 1981, uh, 13 people are killed, both sides. Because actually, ETA managed to, to kill people on their own side on the bombings. Um, and it's a unique case. Uh, it's a unique case in Europe in which uh, the plans to develop a nuclear power plant end up on terrorist attacks, and so many people die uh, on that. And that's very strongly engraved on the memory of the sector. We have interviewed people that had been working on the nuclear sector for the last 30, 40 years, and they still remember very clearly where they were when the chief engineer of, of Lemonis, which was a, the nuclear power plant at the end, uh, main cause of the whole aggravation, actually he was kidnapped and then assassinated. And all of them remember where they were on that day. So somehow terrorism marks the anti-nuclear movement in Spain and make it very difficult because then you have to take a decision at the time, uh, whether you side with the government and the companies or you side with the terrorists. Um, and it wasn't as crystal clear as that, because you could be anti-nuclear, but not necessarily a Basque nationalist. Um, so that makes things very complicated at the beginning of the 80s in Spain for the anti-nuclear movements as well. But also forced the government to, to make a very clear statement. They couldn't give up uh, on the decision to, to build a nuclear plant, because that would basically imply just giving up on on the wishes of the terrorists. And that brings us to the second event, which is the Spanish moratorium, um, which took place, um, well, it was announced in the, in the autumn 1983 uh, and officially put into law in 1984. Um, for a part of uh, the analyst, the nuclear moratorium is a straight consequence of the violence of ETA, of what happened in the Basque country. Uh, what we would like to put forward is that that part of the story is true, and definitely Lemonis actually uh, was stopped actually before the moratorium. Uh, but the moratorium has more to do with economic factors, with the fact that by the 80s, the electrical companies could hardly bear the cost of the finance of the projects they had started a decade or before. Uh, and that was in the minds of the government that they wanted to rescue, or at least, not, if not rescuing directly, at least hoping that the electrical companies won't break. Uh, and that would imply basically stopping the nuclear projects and uh, reimbursing the electrical companies for their losses.
From the question of violence, terrorism, and nuclear energy, now to a very popular one, and perhaps more well-known, economics. The question of how money, how finance, and even how competing types of energy impact events. Once again, Robert Budd. We're looking at, in England, at a decision made in 1974 that the kind of next generation reactor to be chosen was not, as the French had decided only shortly before, the widely used American-style reactor, the pressurized water reactor, but a kind of reactor which the British thought was much safer. And the British experts, the government chief scientist, uh, the country's most uh, respected nuclear engineer, thought and widely said that the American reactors were dangerous. It seems, at first analysis, that the concern shown by these very well-respected uh, experts in a very public way, for their concern for safety led to a public belief that nuclear energy was safe, even if it might be expensive. And that decision was later uh, reversed because of its expense. Well, one thing which has been quite distinctive in Britain has been the relative acceptance of nuclear power on safety terms, though great suspicion of it on cost terms. And that means that at this present time, the British are planning, and it's acceptable for the British to plan eight nuclear reactors at a time when, in many other Western European countries, there's a moratorium. The public refused to accept uh, nuclear reactors on grounds of safety. And we're trying to understand what kind of technical decision-making took place such that uh, safety was not an issue, whereas in other countries it was. And this requires a detailed study of one country, but it helps us understand how we might do comparable studies in other countries and how we might think of nuclear energy decision-making across Europe. And one of the mistakes we tend to make is to look at electricity in isolation and not think about gas, for instance, at the same time. And one of the things that deeply influences decision-making about nuclear power has been the availability or the lack of it of gas. And we did see a, um, a very interesting line of moratorium states running uh, from Austria in the south, or Italy in the south, via Austria to Germany and then Denmark, of countries which refused to accept uh, nuclear power. One thing I thought was, um, I knew that Germany had found Russian gas uh, a very important new energy source from the 1960s and 70s. And this had deeply affected the German chemical industry. And I wondered to what extent this line of countries which were... Um, more worried about electricity also reflected a line of countries which had found one way or another access to Russian gas because it was a line running north-south 
roughly the constant east-west. And I remembered the very bitter discussions um, in the 1980s about extending the Russian gas pipeline further west and indeed the Americans suggesting that this be boycotted and the British and other countries refusing to boycott Russian gas. And the, it made me think that we must reflect not only on uh, electricity but gas and particularly North Sea gas as well as Russian gas before we can come to a proper understanding of what happened to nuclear power since the Second World War. My name is Gabo Polo. I did work for the uh, Institute of Physics at the Technical University for a long while, and then uh, I was deputy director in the Institute of Philosophy of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. But I'm basically a historian of science, not only physics, chemistry, and biology. When the first Hungarian, I mean, the only Hungarian nuclear power station was constructed was during communism. In uh, communist countries, there were no civil society, there were no NGOs, and there were no, uh, absolutely no, uh, free press. But still, there was a bargaining process between the Soviets and the Hungarians, and between the Soviets and other satellite countries. So it's an interesting phenomenon that we are in the Cold War period, behind the Iron Curtain. All mechanisms, uh, I mean decision mechanisms, are different from the Western democratic procedures. And, of course, uh, the Hungarian politicians wanted to represent the Hungarian general population because they didn't want to be unpopular. Don't forget that there was a, a revolution against the Soviet system in 1956. Because of that, the Hungarian party uh, was, you know, quite cautious. And the Soviets also understood that they have to take into consideration that the Hungarian party knows how to keep the Hungarian population, you know, press under pressure. Uh, the Hungarians and the Soviets uh, uh, signed a contract of establishing, of constructing a nuclear power station in 1966. And they started really to work, uh, they set up an organization and as they said, the place where uh, uh, the future nuclear st uh, power station will work, and they started the whole project. And a couple of years later, uh, the Hungarian government decided to postpone this whole procedure. In fact, it, uh, their decision was uh, not to have a nuclear power station. Why? not because they were anti-nuclear, not because of any green ideas, nothing like that. It was purely uh, political negotiations. Hungary's uh, uh, energy policy was based originally on coal. In the 1960s, they wanted to modernize this uh, energy structure, as they call it, uh, to include more and more oil and gas. 
And then some people who were considered to be lunatic suggested that there is an other kind of energy called nuclear energy. So, uh, because the Soviets wanted to sell a nuclear power station, they included uh, this possibility into the plans. But uh, there were interested groups against the uh, uh, nuclear project. Why? Because those people who wanted to modernize this uh, energy structure wanted to build uh, 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 power stations uh, uh, based on oil and, and uh, gas. And of course, uh, oil and gas, uh, Hungary has no oil and gas. They could buy it from the Soviet Union. No question, nothing else. And the price is very low. And, to, and, and just to build a nuclear power station would have been extremely expensive. And uh, the technical, technological requirements were very high for the general level of the Hungarian uh, technological you know, requirements. Anyway, uh, these people who represented the other parts of the uh, energy lobby won in the party. Don't forget that there is no real parliament, there is no uh, uh, real democracy, but, you know, in, in the small offices, people were bargaining, and all of them were communists, and they won against the nuclear lobby. From among the many country cases that honest researchers have been working on, there are some occasions where a movement or a way of looking at nuclear energy emerges from an unexpected place. Take the following case examples. The Netherlands, where a movement is mobilized because of an electric bill, and Japan, where a powerful movement emerges from a tiny island. Well, my name is Erik Berkers. Uh, I work for the foundation for the history of technology, based at Eindhoven University of Technology. I'm an historian. I think for the Netherlands, an, an interesting event is the uh, uh, anti-nuclear movement that got momentum after the, uh, the decision of the Dutch government to take part in the fast breeder project at Kalkar, uh, which is at the border, in, it is in Germany, at the border with the Netherlands. And although there was some opposition against it already from the rather small uh, opposition against nuclear, small movement against nuclear uh, power, it gained an extra momentum because the Dutch wanted to finance this uh, very costly uh, cooperation in the Kalka project by adding a, a, a fee, an extra charge to the electricity bill. And for uh, people uh, uh, opposing this, this government decision to take part in the Kalkar project, it was very the instrument to, to uh, oppose it because they could uh, ask people not to, to pay this fee if they didn't want to uh, participate in this Kalkar project. And they asked the government, well, explaining why, we sh why should we take 
part in this Kalka project. So people uh, were looking at their electricity bills. They saw it was higher than last month. And they, well, a lot of people who were not interested in nuclear energy at all uh, just didn't like this uh, bill raise. So uh, a lot of people uh, were motivated not to pay it and uh, did so, didn't pay their electricity bill, which um, made the electricity companies, uh, placed the electricity companies in a very difficult position because the only thing they could do is to shut those people down from their electricity supply, which is of course a very harsh measure. Uh, and this really uh, made uh, a nuclear power discussion in the Netherlands, gave the nuclear power discussion in the Netherlands an enormous uh, momentum, an enormous uh, uh, grow uh, at that time in 1973-1974. Yeah, and, and it, the government really, afterwards it really was, it was noticed as a, a very a dumb decision to make it so explicit on the electricity bill. The government really instituted the Dutch anti-nuclear movement with this. I'm Aisulu Harjula from Lappeenranta University of Technology in Finland. For many people, um, Fukushima is very well-known accident also. Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombing is really, really famous. So, like, generally we know that what happened uh, in the World War and what happened in recently in 2011, but what really happened between those uh, dates? It was a really long story of uh, Japanese adoptment of nuclear power and, and how Japanese society came to use this nuclear power. And this is one particular case is public engagement with... <clears throat> In Kaminosiki region, this is a um, Japanese um, nuclear power site uh, that government proposed to have to build uh, nuclear reactors um, there in 1970s. So it was at the time when there was an uh, oil shock. And uh, for government, it was important to build as much of um, nuclear reactors as possible. So government decided to locate these uh, nuclear reactors in the regions where there is no local opposition because they kind of learned if they um, decide to build it on the coast somewhere in the, in the area and then there is local opposition come from them then it's very difficult to, uh, to build any reactor there. And so this Kaminoseki region, it was very interesting, characterized by no, nucle uh, no nuclear opposition, but there is one small island with very strong opposition. So this island and people, uh, this group, anti-nuclear anti group, that play really huge role. And from 70s till now, already over 30 years, um, these two reactors are under construction. And, and this, like anti-nuclear group, it really plays a huge role. That was Aisulu Harila from Laperanta University of Technology, Finland.
So what have we learned today when it comes to the importance and impact of events on the history of nuclear energy? For one, as we heard these stories from places like Spain to Japan, we can see that it's not always the same kind of events that spark a change in public opinion or a government plan or a mass protest movement. Even countries that share a border, like the Netherlands and Germany, have been shaped by events that are quite different. In Spain, there was the element of violence and terrorism. In West Germany, there was also the specter of violence, but it wasn't in the same way. Then there's Japan and the influence of Fukushima, or going back to the Second World War. The importance of the coal and fossil fuel industry is a factor that comes up at different moments and across borders, specifically in this program when we talk about the UK and Hungary. And let's not forget the Netherlands, which it's odd tale of the nuclear energy tax that galvanized a movement. These stories may each seem unique, and indeed they have their own set of players and evolution, but if you look or listen closely, you can also start to make the connections. And that does it for this edition of The Honest Podcast. If you'd like to continue this conversation, you can find us on Twitter, honest underscore 2020, or on Facebook under the name Honest History of Nuclear Energy and Society. My recommendation, go to iTunes or whatever podcast directory you use, press the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. We had music today by Mind's Eye, Lobo Loco, and Kai Engel. Archive nuclear audio at the beginning of the program can be found on archive.org, all published under a CC license. The Honest Podcast is published under a CC BYSA 4.0 license and edited by me. Until next time, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. Thanks for listening.